Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Today, a very special guest on the American Shoreline Podcast. We're pleased to welcome Dr. Radley Horton from Columbia University to the American Shoreline Podcast. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Horton. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I want to introduce you. I think uh, we're it's such a great guest for the show, and I think for the listeners on the network, uh, I guess we're going to do the ad. Let me do the intro, and then we'll do the ads, because uh, Dr. Horton is the Lamont Associate Research Professor at Columbia University in New York City. Uh, his focus of research for many years now has been climate science, climate extremes. I'm very interested, Dr. Horton, in this issue of tail risks. I can't wait to hear about that and climate impacts. But recently he was part of the organization at Columbia University that uh, brought us the retreat conference, which was the first conference on uh, managed retreat, I think, in the United States, if I'm not wrong about that. Certainly, I mean, it immediately got our attention when we saw this managed retreat conference. It's such an interesting topic that has been kind of a third rail issue for so long. So really cool to have uh, Radley on the show today and uh, dive into uh, if I believe it's like when when managed retreat. Let me get I got you. At what point managed retreat? At what point? Great question. We will be diving into that in a hot second. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. Uh, We want to thank the folks who help keep ASPN on the air and also uh, support Coastal News Today. Uh, Frederique Barrissette and her team at Dune Doctors down in Pensacola, Florida, are experts at shoreline restoration and particularly with native dune plants. So from concept to permit to construction they're the folks to call if you're on the gulf coast or southeast atlantic shoreline find them at dunedoctors.com our good friends at coastal engineering consultants headed up by michael poff outstanding engineer outstanding man good guy uh, runs a great company they're out of naples florida if you have coastal engineering needs along the gulf coast uh, along the coast of florida either side the atlantic side or the gulf side Give Coastal Engineering Consultants a look, coastalengineering.com. And finally, LJA Engineering and our good friend Bill Worsham with 28 offices in Texas and Louisiana. LJA Engineers, super smart guys on shoreline change and shoreline risk analysis. Find LJA and Bill Worsham at lja.com. Well, Radley, uh, when Peter and I were preparing for this show, I knew that I had one question I just had to ask you. And when you... When you uh, title your conference, uh, at what point manage retreat? I just have to ask to kick this whole thing off. And of course, we're going to talk about uh, the origin of this question. But let me just ask you, at what point manage retreat? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great way to start, I think. Um, and I, I do feel I have to say that in, in putting together this conference, we struggled with a title um, for sure. So I think if it's OK with you, you know, let's maybe take a minute to unpack that phrase, at what point managed retreat? I think there's kind of at least three interesting parts there. Um, At what point? So that implies um, maybe a moment in time, maybe a particular location, um, but of course there's really gonna be a gradient. Um, You know, when to retreat is gonna depend on just how 
what how extreme the climate hazard is in a place, uh, how vulnerable communities are, and the extent to which adaptation or resilience in place, things like seawalls or you know, natural uh, defenses, things like dunes, may be viable. So at what point is an interesting question. In reality, it's not going to be a binary for any one place, but it's going to be a gradient. And then, you know, towards those other words, managed retreat. Um, so retreat, certainly when people hear retreat, again, it's a binary. And I think for a lot of people, it makes them think of defeat, abandonment. So that is a control, controversial word, um, you know, for some communities, but I think I think an important one. And then managed also is you know meant to be very thought-provoking managed by whom uh this is something that individuals get to decide who decides um you know and, and in practice a lot of these decisions to move away end up being individuals um maybe spur of the moment it's not always you know managed in some sense so i think you rightly in your question have honed in um, on some difficult challenges that we were, you know, looking to, you know, start to kind of illuminate um, and unpack uh, in this conference. But my overall takeaway is that words are very important, right? And how we define these things matters. Well, it, it is a provocative question. And I think the way you just described it uh, introduces the, 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 the really the main threads of that decision, not only at what point is the scientific question, what is the status of mm -hmm. the shoreline? This is a dynamic place, the land-water yeah. interface. It's always in motion. So yeah. there's a point along the way here where perhaps the problem becomes so intolerable, uh, either by people's own uh, sense of risk, but maybe perhaps financial risk of insurers mm -hmm. or, or financiers or investors or real estate investment trusts, that kind of thing. Uh, there's the science of it, there's the status of it, but the but the politics of it and the policy of it, the who manages and to to where. Uh, God, what I mean, I can't tell you. So you've got to give us an overview of this conference. It sounds like uh, exactly the kind of discussion that needs to be happening on the American shoreline. Uh, what give us the overview, the highlights? What surprised you about the weekend? Uh, the conference just wrapped up. By the way, it was uh, uh, July what nineteenth to the twenty first. So. <clears throat> just this past weekend uh tell us what what you came away with yeah so um it, it really was a fascinating discussion i mean i think you know some of the takeaways for me were that um you know these are still early days i think what we were doing was a convening of a lot of the voices that need to be in the room as we think about these long-term decisions that are partly about climate and you know as you sort of alluded to in your earlier remarks partly about more generally what kind of society do we all want how do we all you know get to weigh in with our kind of perspective but i do feel that we succeeded in getting in the room maybe a broader set of voices on this topic than have been there before we had you know the climate scientists for sure um and not just coastal actually i should also note that while that was a theme the coast was we did also have presentations on things like fire risk in the west on around the world how combinations of high temperatures and high humidity at the very same time uh, may for more and more populations especially in places like the persian gulf um, south asia present real challenges in terms of being able to just do basic sort of outdoor work and agriculture but so so not just coastal climate hazards but mm -hmm. getting back towards the heart of your question uh, i think what was most exciting 
was the dialogues that went beyond the climate science. It was the lawyers in the room starting to right. you know, say, does existing law support or hinder um, this kind of thing? Wow. The real estate folks, uh, the insurance community, environmental justice, um, the yep. vulnerability mappers, you know, so it really was, um, you know, I think a broad discussion. And in terms of some of the takeaways, um, one of the biggest ones for me um, is this question of scale, right? Because we heard, you know, validly over and over again, community representatives um, talking about how there can't be a one size fits all policy. You know, individual communities need to be able to decide what to do. We heard about the history of top-down forces, you know, acting, quote-unquote, for the greater good, imposing real uh, challenges on communities. And that's a valid perspective, a critical perspective. But at the same time, it's also true that, you know, we see with rising sea levels, with sort of poor, um, you know, exposing people to, to risk in the coastline in the past, the scale of the challenge is so big and growing that, from my mind at least, it's going to be impossible to tackle it unless we have some top-down mechanisms, unless we engage with some powerful institutions in society, right, whether it's, you know, you name it, zoning, insurance, you know, investment, uh, and there's going to need to be some um, standardization of the process given how many communities are, are involved. So how do we meet how do we that's a paradox and i don't you know, i don't think there's an easy answer to how to satisfy both of those scales other than just to say it's going to need to be a little bit of all of the above so that, that was one of the takeaways another one also you alluded to already that the hazard piece right like just how often an area is flooding just how high the waters are going to get is long term you know obviously maybe the central aspect here but if you start to actually ask you know, what's going to happen when, when are people going to decide to retreat? All those other human things you mentioned, um, maybe the tipping points there. When does risk perception change? When does the media start to talk more about this topic? When does a place just, you know, when, when, when's the year when we sort of somewhat randomly get perhaps get hit by those three, you know, big hurricanes, God forbid. And, you know, one of these sort of banks such as our, flood insurance, um, you know, our ability to respond to emergencies, we sort of cross that bank in some sense and, and, and lose whatever storage capacity we have there. Things like that could lead to the tipping point in terms of real estate values, risk perception, and this sort of, you know, runaway unwinding for at least some places uh, actually before the water arrives, frankly. So I think that's a, a fascinating and really, really challenging part of this discussion. And I don't think anybody can say when that when that date happens and of course it's going to vary by place you know uh, you raised a number of issues there i want to circle back to uh this idea of local control versus central control and yeah. and, and the planning process and and obviously uh, uh the conference uh, took place in new york city uh, in manhattan a uh, very interesting place uh and time for uh, this conference to happen on the heels of, of course, Sandy and all of the federal money, uh, centrally controlled federal money uh, mm-hmm. that did, you know, there was a, there is a large degree of cooperation between uh, state and local forces there. But New York is beefing up its armament and looking to plan for the future. And yeah. uh, I know that uh, on the program, there were people from the city, I believe, and also from the state. Uh, mm-hmm. How did how, what's the outlook there in New York uh, vis-a-vis these issues that you just raised? 
Yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, a couple things to highlight there. I want to, you know, emphasize your point about, you know, we had the big storm or, you know, one of the plausible big storms, you know, here in the New York region. So how does that change the dialogue? That, that's one interesting piece. And another interesting piece is, as you say, um, just what is, you know, specifically sort of happening in New York. How is New York different? than maybe some other areas. So, you know, New York having had Sandy, that's, you know, a perfect, back in 2012, that's a perfect example, um, I think, of how risk perception can shift, you know, very dramatically in a hurry. Um, and it almost doesn't matter in a, in a way what, you know, whether Sandy's a one in a hundred year event, one in 300 year event, one in 10 year event. When something like that happens, people's perception of risk um, changes. And as you said, federal funds become available. So there are, quite frankly, you know, opportunities in a certain sense um, for transformative changes, I think, such as, you know, locally considering things like retreat, which did happen in some communities, you know, minor sort of small examples in the New York region uh, after Sandy. So that's an interesting piece. Of course, Ideally, we would make these decisions before the big storm hit, right, so that we could, you know, avoid the possibility of people not being able to evacuate in time, the potential loss of life, but also simply because, you know, economically it's um, you know, going to be much more efficient if we can get, uh, get assets out of harm's way before the storm hits. So that's part of the New York story, that, that there were those funds available post-Sandy. The other part, I think, is that um, – you know, relative to other parts of the country, um, it may be easier to talk about climate change in New York City. There may be more assets available. Um, you know, it may be more plausible to, you know, fund a giant, you know, barrier around at least parts of the city. That remains to be seen, but it looks like that may be maybe part of the story for some places um what about the other parts of the of the country and of the world though where um either raising sufficient funds to build those um barriers in place may be challenging or the classic sort of example of parts of south florida right where even if you mm -hmm. had as much money as you wanted you have limestone underneath that water will sort of percolate up from so i think new york's very interesting there is maybe relative to other places it's a little more plausible to Imagine those big investments in engineered um, structures, uh, but I think the future remains unseen. One last point. I know I'm running on no, here. No, no, please do. No okay. Problem. There's yeah. always multiple realities in any place, right? Like so sitting, I've been involved in New York City. I've been fortunate enough to contribute to the, um, you know, climate science assessment, sea level rise risk going back 10 years or so. And I can honestly sort of make these two statements at once that seem a bit um, contradictory that New York City, on the one hand, has absolutely been at the forefront in terms of wanting to hear the full range of possibilities. They always pushed us to tell them just how bad could sea level rise be, but also, you know, what's a more likely scenario. They, they truly were amenable to that information. However, I can in the same, by the same token, say some decisions, you know, have moved forward, apparently not, you know, fully embracing that, that science that parts of the city you know, certainly asked for and wanted, but it also remains a reality that powerful mechanisms can continue to lead to some building um, in what appear to be very vulnerable zones. So it's interesting how those two realities can, can coexist. And I think there's probably similar stories that play out um, around the country and around the world um, when we think of, you know, decision-making and, and, and who actually uh, 
has all the power. Right. And, you know, it's such a, I think it's a great idea and it's helpful to me to talk about the specific of New York City and Sandy uh, and the impact on the town. Uh, I think you're right. There's a receptivity there, political receptivity to to the discussion of climate change that isn't necessarily present in all of the coastal communities around the American shoreline or around the world. But in large urban areas, I think I'm curious about this distinction. If this came up in the conference, is when you start to look at the the vastness of this issue, the pervasiveness, and yeah. how it uh, happens in the Mississippi River Delta or up in Alaska or every yeah. every damn place uh, in to some degree, um, the decision making seems to pivot on whether it is an urban versus a rural or residential shoreline. A barrier or mm. shorelines are talked about differently. Uh, we see a significant movement toward fortification of the American shoreline in urban areas. Um, de Blasio has $10.5 billion plan up there in New York City uh, with the gates uh, being proposed. We're seeing it in Houston. We're seeing uh, significant fortification discussions in San Francisco Bay, in addition to, you know, living shoreline response. But when when you're listening to the real estate guys and you're listening to the uh, insurance people, uh, how does that come? Does the conversation pivot uh, uh, on this, uh, the nature of the development on the shoreline, the urban, I call it urban rural, but it's it's really Big cities are are not going to retreat. We're gonna we're gonna spend whatever it takes to keep Lower Manhattan happy. Yeah, I mean, I think that you can you can find examples of that. I don't remember the specifics, but I believe that. Um, I think I think actually um, I believe uh, Mayor Bloomberg at the time, um, you know, essentially said something along the lines of New Yorkers aren't going to retreat, if I remember right, after Sandy. Um, so I think. It sounds like you all know more um, than I do maybe about the sort of rural urban distinction. But, you know, from my perspective, one thing that came up at the conference is that we wished we had more of the rural voices, you know, on the coastline, but also inland, right, on these estuaries, on these on these, you know, rivers where there's a history of flooding and where the heavier rains of the future that we anticipate um, and, and then, you know, throughout the inland areas. But also in your sort of then that quasi tidal tidal zone, the combined effects of the higher sea level and those heavier rain events are going to perpetuate some of those flood risks, you know, further inland, um, you know, to a greater degree with even small rainfall events than, than what we're used to in the past. So I think that's critically important. And here, too. And we have another one of these kind of paradoxes of perspective from a certain kind of you know macroeconomic perspective one could probably make a plausible argument you know within its within its limits that well the big cities have more assets right or the homes are worth more and if building some sort of barrier costs a certain amount per mile well it's more quote unquote correct justifiable right on the other hand someone could make an equally valid uh, argument from an environmental justice perspective from a sort of cultural heritage perspective that um, the argument I just put forth basically guarantees a perpetuation um, of a lot of the sort of of you know wrongs in terms of environmental justice and vulnerability too right we got to keep in mind that it's not just the economics uh when these storm surges come um especially as seas rise if we see higher temp water temperatures near the coast that 
suggests at least, at least the possibility that we may have less advanced warning time before some of these hurricanes. So there yeah. is a survivability safety aspect here, too. And I think hopefully as a society, um, you know, just about anybody would grimace at the notion that um, – you know, the wealthier people should should have better seawall protection from a survivability. So I, I, I muddled that a little bit. I think yeah, hopefully but, you sort of take my point that there's yeah. the mainstream macroeconomics, but there's these environmental justice equity questions, too. So it's, it's a big challenge. It's it's it, I, that's what I love about the topic. And I don't I hate to say love it, but I do. I mean, the intricacy of this topic, it really just pulls together all of these threads of important values in society. Uh, yeah. You know, we're starting to see the migration, a little bit of the out migration in the Mississippi River area, the Isle uh, de Jean Charel, uh, the town, which is a historic Native American community. This was a yes. community that that settled in the Mississippi River Delta to avoid the Trail of Tears. And, and yeah. that community is has been bought. Uh, there is a supplemental town. That's an area that's been purchased. There's. I think Louisiana is a place where I'm starting to see the most advanced thinking on the topic, not just yeah. because of that one town, but because of L.A. Safe, what's called Louisiana Safe. Pat Forbes, he's the director of that program, is their HUD money, federal HUD money investment in resiliency and community. Uh, and tell you what, and you talk to Pat Forbes, and we did a show with Pat, God, I think it was last, it was last year, but the cultural aspect of the communities along the shoreline and the historic... Uh, uh, connection of these people yeah. to the life of the coast is as critical as the science in there. And I love that. I love that about Louisiana that they're thinking that way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to, you know, here's one of the things I wonder about. We watched Mexico beach. You mentioned higher sea surface temperatures, greater intensity in hurricanes. I mean, hurricane Michael, was a 72-hour storm from a tropical depression to a Category 5 hurricane mm-hmm. that smashed into the Florida panhandle. Uh, and in our discussion with uh, Ken Graham, who's the director of the National Hurricane Center, he talked about that rapidity, the, the, the speed to which hmm. that occurred and how it really is difficult uh, from a risk perception standpoint for people. You know, you, you listen to the news and it's a Category 1 storm 24 hours before and you think okay so there's a category one so you blow it off and immediately it's into a five this uh this risk perception uh that you're talking about can you elucidate or can you describe anything at the conference that related to that how how is the public perception of this problem evolving what did what did you hear at the conference yeah you know i think on the uh, you know on on the sort of climate science side i'm not sure we were able to make that many advances at this conference in terms of you know talking about the climate communication piece although i I think that's fascinating i think you know what 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 we heard more at this conference was how is public perception of just sort of in general, just about sort of vulnerability to gradually rising seas, more frequent, um, you know, nuisance flooding. And just this idea that um, our interconnected kind of systems could set off chain reactions, um, you know, more quickly than we might have thought. So, for example, um, you know, how much might real estate values have to drop in some areas for it suddenly to become very difficult to continue to, you know, uh, you know, underwrite 
you know, future investments in infrastructure or to, you know, through the tax base, you know, you know raise enough money. So it's sort of those kind of vulnerabilities, this notion that maybe we're a little further extended than we realized. Hmm. I think that was a very common theme. You know, how could the fact that some major underwriters like Moody's have put some municipalities on notice I, to my knowledge they haven't actually lowered credit ratings yet right. for any but they're certainly sending powerful signals that you know any groups who fail to truly assess um not just their own greenhouse gas emissions but their vulnerability to um extreme events and and, and things like creeping changes more frequent nuisance flooding um and not only do they have to sort of uh discuss their vulnerability but also need to talk about strategies to to make themselves uh, less vulnerable how they're going to adapt right if they don't do that they're going to they're not going to have access to the best um you know lending rates that's the kind of thing that i yeah, think yeah. could be transformative and as more investors you know in the sort of this what's called the esg space start demanding not just you know that you not be invested in coal but that you um you know, again, look at those risks, think about the supply chains, all the ways you could be affected by, you know, extreme weather. Right. That, you know, I think I think there's 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 potential for rapid changes um, there. In that I kind of feel like you're on. I believe you're correct there. And and, and it, it's really um, the difference between what it feels like to be an individual homeowner and to contemplate that risk and to come to mm-hmm. a decision that, well, you know what, I'm going to keep the beach house. I, I've, I've got the grandkids and that's going to be 10 years and it's pretty short. And what are the odds? We see this all the time. Individuals, yeah. uh, you know, the, the storm has just passed. The ruins are smoldering. They're standing in front of their collapsed house going, you know what, we're not leaving. We're going to build yeah. this back. The whole damn thing's coming back. This is a true in Mexico beach uh, there in Florida that was just absolutely obliterated and the persistence wow. of of americans you know this is so much part of the american character i think yeah why retreat is a word that you just we just don't do that yeah however what you're talking about with when when you see declining property values and this has been documented and i'm sure you're totally aware of the real estate studies that have happened and already documenting all up and down the atlantic seaboard hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars in lost real estate value I'm thinking the insurance industry and the real estate investment people are the folks who are going to tip this thing well before the American public, you know, individually gets it uh, or admits to it, because those are the guys with risk. What did what did you hear from them? The, the, The finance people? What was there anything surprising there? Can you can you? Let us uh, like eavesdrop on that conversation. How'd that sound at your conference? I think, you know, very similar to what uh, you just articulated. I think, you know, nobody is is ready to say when this is going to happen. But I think everybody, you know, a lot of groups feel a a kind of responsibility to um, note that this could happen, you know, sooner rather than later. And of course, that you know, sets off a whole change of a chain of challenging questions because of the, um, you know, bubble aspects in many in many dimensions. You know, if we're already, it's hard to imagine a way that we can unwind um, this overinvestment in some coastal areas, right? So some coastal areas are going to be be okay, but. Um, you know, again, where you can build a barrier or, you know, where you're elevated, you know, along the coast, whatever it is, the vulnerability is going to differ. But in some of these places, you know, there have been bad decisions for a long period of time. And, um, you know, our policies have 
led to a bubble. So I think people are feeling like, how do we unwind this in a way that, um, you know, just doesn't doesn't lead to a bunch of sort of catastrophic effects for folks. And I think one thing I heard at the conference was this idea of who's going to get access to the information first, right? So one critical question is, you know, who needs, for example, a, you know, a buyout the most? Is it, um, you know, certainly one of the central questions is, is it someone who's their primary home versus a secondary home? Should it be based on, you know, the value of the asset? Is there some notion of foreseeability that maybe someone who just moved to one of these areas, you know, was, was making a poor decision. You know, I don't think a lot of folks at the conference, you know, feel that they should be punished more of those people, but that that's something that was, that was articulated. So who, you know, with limited funds, you know, how do you decide who should maybe get a, get a buyout, but then more generally, yeah, just this issue of, um, what's the smart money and you know who gets left holding the bag you know i'm not a you know expert on economics or history but you know my my sense is that um you know often when you have one of these kinds of unwindings and a bubble um bursting uh you know certain certain groups who who historically may have tended not to have access to all the information can be can be left holding the bag in some ways for example not being able to leave um, maybe those who rely the most on things like public transportation uh, might in the future uh, you know suffer from a smaller um, tax base that's able to even pay for some of that you know key infrastructure in some of these places as as wealthy people leave or as as property values drop so all, all these kinds of questions are, are just you know fascinating and, and vexing well i've got a hot take uh my my hot take not not anyone else's but you asked the question at what point and i would say that at what point manage retreat? And I would say just by the fact that we are able to have this show and that you're able to have a conference with the word manage retreat in it, the, the point has probably already happened. And mm-hmm. I guess what I've been thinking about as we've been talking is that um, retreat is it's really why this has been a third rail thing in like psychologically in, in our minds is that uh, we, we didn't see the value in giving up the, the space in and I yes. when I say the space that's like an intellectual you know I'm, I'm talking about like a conceptual space not not necessarily coastal space or any other geographical mm-hmm. space but it's like you are giving that back to the planet in a way you're giving that back mm-hmm. to the environment and the fact that we are having that conversation and valuing by virtue of even having the discussion there's got to be value to do it whether it's r- simply risk mitigation value which is a very mm-hmm. human way of looking at it or whether whether it's a larger conversation about how much can we take how much hmm. how much can humanity ask of the planet and how do we ask it what i think we're i think that this conference and this idea while put in the crucible of the coastal space and peter and i talk about this all the time that the coastal space is a crucible where we kind of boil off all the baloney because it's just the the environment is so complex and so changing all the time we just have to confront these things but you know it seems to me that uh we are that 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 is really at the at the, the deep root of what you're asking there and i would just love to get your thought am i way off or is that are you have you thought about that or what do you think about that 
Yeah, I mean, I think you raised a lot. Or I, I kind of wish we had you, you. You were able to there be there and present at the conference, you know, because one of the you know early kind of takeaways when we looked through before the conference next the abstract, year, Bradley. Yeah, that's no, we're we're, we're going to uh, that's going to help me make the case for why we should reconvene to to Columbia. I think that would be great. Um, so, you know, a few things we did not have many abstracts on. For example, I don't think we had a single abstract on a species other than humans. You know, what is what does managed retreat mean for other species? We definitely had some talks that you know looked at things like marsh migration. Um, you know, beginning to think about things like what retreat. What gets left behind? What could, um, you know, what, what could some of the benefits for ecosystems be? But you know that you can't count on those benefits, right? If the seas are rising too fast and marshes can't, things like you, know, you guys understand much better yeah. than I do. Yeah. Um, but you know, we need we need a lot more in that space. We had somebody I wish I could remember who talking about it. Might it might have been Siders from Harvard? Uh, you know, put forward this idea that you know, hey, just thinking big. You know, what if at some point in the future the entire u.s coastline was a you know something like a national seashore you know as you know pie in the sky something to you know just just consider out there as an extreme view but but what if you know we're envisioning mm-hmm. um you know, possible futures here and i think i think also um you know this the the, the, the they're, they're, uh so there need to be some positive framings here too right we need to be saying where to? Um, you know, where, what are the opportunities going to be? How do we get uh, people to safer places rather than places where there are just new vulnerabilities? How do we make sure people are not, you know, bur- you know, using so much concrete and cutting down so many trees and building new homes um, in new places that you know our greenhouse gas emissions you know surge as a result, or that they're moving to places where maybe we won't be as as obligated to you know, distant, you know, very spread out uh, environments with lots of fossil fuel burning. Um, So, but there are opportunities, let's be honest about, you know, where to and envisioning cities of the future, uh, if, if done right. And undeniably, um, even though there's going to be some bubbles bursting and a lot of pain, um, there's no denying the argument for sort of uh, safer, uh, more strategic investments. And then cutting through to the heart of it all is, I think, very hard to define. But but real idea that even without climate change, you know, there are scenarios, as we've seen to some extent, certainly with Katrina, uh, without question, um, that you can always, uh, for a variety of reasons, get everybody out of harm's right. way. And as horrific as Katrina was, I'm sure from a sort of war games perspective, um, you know, one can imagine situations with even more casualties if you had that sort of worst combination of the right. quickly forming storm everybody hitting the roads at the same time and then god forbid yeah you know just to pull something that sounds totally out of left field what if some sort of bad actor intentionally you know interfered with evacuation at that time so you know these are all scenarios i'm not an expert in in war games but we have a lot of you know vulnerability along our along our coastal areas so tremendous you know we got to find some positive framings around this you know well absolutely i think uh, anytime we start talking about climate change it starts to feel very dark pretty quickly because of Mm -hmm. the the scale of the problem and the and the the, and the in the coordination that is going to be required on the planet and i just question whether we have the institutional capacity yeah. to respond at the level that uh 
is required here. And I say that based on the, the series of interviews we did at EarthX with uh, EarthX, which is a conservative environmental conference where climate change was front and center. And uh-huh. serious business people in the, in the military are talking about the magnitude of the problem and the and yeah. the and you know these guys are in that we, we can't be net zero uh, carbon emissions we have to be net negative that's how radical the thinking is and 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 yeah. it's pretty convincing when you just look at the the, the numbers but the, yeah. I'm I'm fascinated what I'm really interested in and I we've got to have you back on and you've got to do another conference I, you absolutely cannot you should tell those folks this has got to be we need the smartest people thinking about this stuff every damn year. And I think the conference is such a great idea and why not New York? It's a great place uh, for it. But the, the thing that strikes me I'm fascinated by is, is what is inhibiting us from being smarter about what we're doing all the time? What are the political, economic, mm-hmm. personal barriers? And I'll, I want to throw one out and, and, you know, we're getting down. I know you got to leave pretty soon, but I want to talk about something I call the time frame of reference difference as an explanation of why we can't seem to get, you know, into a rational posture. It's, yeah. it's thinking about the, t- the frame of reference for what scientists think about a climate scientist like yourself is looking at not decades, but centuries of time. Here are the trends. This is what's happening. Let's look at how things are modulating and changing over longer stretches of time um, versus the elected official time frame horizon, which is typically two to four years to the next election cycle. Um, you look at the developer community and you look at it, what investors think about and and uh, it's less than 10 years. The return on investment yep. of coastal developers is generally five to seven years return. We're going to put this yep. subdivision down. We're going to cash it out. We're going to sell these houses. We're off and we're gone. Yep. And so when scientists are talking to politicians and talking to the investment community, uh, they're all talking about different scales of time and different levels of risk assessment. And I think somehow that's got to be made more explicit in our dialogue because I think I see people trip all the time and they're and they're getting into these fights and I'm just thinking you're not talking about the same thing (laughs) you know the scientists are trying to tell you look over the next 50 years which is very soon uh, but not to a developer you know Totally. Yeah, no, that's right. I think um, we have to be honest about what the different um, incentives are. I mean, from a certain perspective, you know, developers are, you know, making irrational decisions, right? Absolutely. Uh, These are are smart people. So how do you change those incentives? But, you know, I do think there are some, you know, sort of potentials for breakthrough. So you're right. I mean, climate scientists do generally think, you know, 30 years out uh, or more. But, you know, a few interesting things have happened, I think. You know, one being the idea that the climate change signal, the signal of greenhouse gases, has already emerged um, for some yeah. variables. So, for example, nuisance flooding, right, as you guys as you guys know, um, some parts of our coastline um, where sea level has been, been a little faster, especially places like Norfolk, Virginia, mm-hmm. um, and a, a lot of the southeast U.S., yep. are seeing something on the order now of five to ten times um, as many days with nuisance flooding as they did just a couple generations ago, right? And that's yep. essentially just a you know local and global um, sea level rise uh, signal that's already happened. You know, I think also you can't necessarily you can't pick it out yet at any one location for extreme heat events, but as we average across 
you know, half of the country um, or larger, that signal starting to um, emerge too. Um, so that has, I think, yeah. some potential to begin to break yeah. through um, what you're what you're talking about. But it's also completely true that um, you know there there are existing structures and a five. And then what then what about the challenge of the individual too? Right? Yeah. What seemed you know what again? I'm not, I'm not an anthropologist or anything, but what what served us best? You know, as we evolved, we worried about what was directly in front of us. Yeah. Right. Um, in time and in space. So how do we how do we begin to think about global challenges with this sort of long term planning? It probably goes against a lot of what we're um, you know hardwired to, to do. I mean, I think correct. We can change to some extent, but it shows you the scope of the communication challenge and the need to just it was, this was a takeaway it just it sounds obvious but just the need for more communication one of my favorite uh, parts of the whole conference was a session where we had a group from new hampshire come down a group of actors who uh have oh, yeah. been trained yeah i guess you see so about that um so, we um, we want to have them on i've reached out to them i i they were up in maine right they did a they did it. New Hampshire. Yeah, they were in Maine recently. I think they're based, yeah. they're based in New Hampshire. And yeah, they work all up. Yes. There. So, um, yeah. So, you know, we can we can talk through it right now together. But basically, you have one actor who plays the scientist. Yeah. Um, one is the town planner. Yeah. Um, one is maybe that homeowner, like the one you described earlier in the show. Yeah. You could also imagine, you know, where, you know, a session where you have the, the tax person, the summer tourism person. And basically, you do these dialogues where they, they've been trained in different scenarios. Those actors. Yeah. And they sit down um, and interactively with it, with an audience that could be anybody have these dialogues. And our, our, our audience at the conference was able to, you know, we, we paused during their during their performance. And you would did say have them there. Like, oh, that's it so did, great. It did, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the moderator would say, now, how did, what did you guys think of this answer? You know, what would you like to see next? And then we could sort of pivot and great. encourage conversations among the actors. So, you know, it's it's basically just all about communication and the need to sort of break right. down these boundaries. So, so towards your, your point, I think that's, that that is one of the critical takeaways, changing incentives and just, you know, finding common language is um, challenging. Well, Dr. Radley Horton, I, we're coming to the end. I know you've got a hard stop here, but I want to give you a chance to share how people can learn more about what you're doing up at Columbia University and the Lamont Associate as, a, as, as the researcher in the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. Tell us how people can follow, follow you and learn more about your work. Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, we, we at the Earth Institute at Columbia, we are looking to um, partner around these sort of broad societal questions. We recognize that while the science is critical, you know, the powerful levers um, for change in society are the civil organizations, engineering, community groups, uh, business, you name it. So we're looking to expand those kind of partnerships. Um, personally, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Hopefully I can remember my Twitter handle. I think it's just Radley Horton. R-A-D-L-E-Y H-O-R-T-O-N to learn more about uh, some of what we do. Well, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Radley Horton from Columbia University and uh, one of the leading voices on climate change adaptation in America. 
and and thank you for putting together that conference. And uh, if you ever need anybody to help argue the case for why you should do it again, I would be happy to join, <laughs> to sign up to help. But uh, the conference was at what point manage retreat resiliency building in the coastal zone is the name of the conference. And I understand the proceedings of the conference will be online soon. Can you tell our listeners about that? Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I think within, let's say, um, I think, you know, by, by, by July 8th, I would expect that, um, you know, all the main sessions as well as our side sessions um, uh, should be available uh, at the web- website. Just Google um, at what point managed retreat and uh, you'll be able to be able to find that. Fantastic. Well, we didn't get to talk about tail risk. I was fascinated by that. There's too much here to do in one show. Uh Radley, so seriously, when you have a t- time and there is more to talk about on this subject, would you please let us know? I'd love to have you back on the American Shoreline Podcast, such a critical topic uh, to cover. You bet. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you. And um, look forward to being in touch in the future. Um,